This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. started this off without saying a lot about it. We, we, we sort of touched on this historical case, which is unusual for us. We don't talk a lot about historical cases. But what I was going to do this year, and, and the way that we have sort of justified this, is people are home a lot during the holidays. Like, And when I say home, I don't necessarily mean in their house. They might actually end up being in places they're, they're just normally not they could be with family they could be on the road they could be on planes so we had started last year where we just released sort of the 12 days of christmas uh episodes and we focused on episodes that happened basically around christmas but this year while some of these cases have christmas ties i guess what we're really doing is we're talking about very to me interesting cases that occur that involve escapes and fugitives and and wanted persons those type cases i i get fascinated um with escape cases where it's a prisoner who's supposed to be locked away and somehow they get out so this christmas episode is an escape case that's sort of sprawling i think i get more fascinated by the ones who aren't caught per se they're but usually I, the only ones that sort of echo, like. Yeah, I think they. I think they drop out of the media once people get caught. Would you agree with that? Right, uh, and you know, honestly, so what? They escaped and got caught. It's not that much of a story, right? Yeah. So uh, the now, not everybody that we're going to talk about has been caught, though. Some of them have something else interesting about them. This particular case is not a single escape. There's a lot of escapes. Um, and that's like that's one of those things that makes me go, hmm, that's really interesting. So who we're talking about today is he, when he began his criminal career, he was actually a sergeant in the Air Force. His name is uh, Richard Lee McNair. And in November of 1987... Uh, Richard Lee McNair was attempting a, a burglary in a city called Minot, North Dakota. McNair was 
in the process of, of stealing some stuff when he was surprised by two men and he murdered one of them. The man that he murdered is named Jerry Thies. And the murder took place at a grain elevator that was operated by the Farmers Union Elevator Company. And in nearby uh, Minot Air Force Base, Richard McNair was posted. So he was, this was his duty station that he went to. The other man that was involved was shot four times, but he lived. And when the police went and called McNair in for questioning, McNair, he surrendered a handgun that he had on his person. He had it concealed because uh, he was not planning on going to, uh, to jail that day, but ultimately he changed his mind. He surrendered the handgun and he gets arrested, indicted, and then tried. He ends up being sentenced to two life sentences for murder and attempted murder. These are for the two men in the grain elevator, including the murder of Jerry Thies. And he also gets a 30-year prison sentence for burglary. And I think we sort of saw in some of the fall cases that we talked about, the reason they stack these on there is just in case something happens when one of these charges is overturned, the other one can stick. Uh, that's the idea, at least. So McNair, what was interesting about him wasn't his criminal activities in that murder and burglary because it's a pretty tame he's committing a burglary and he gets surprised and he commits a murder a tame murder in my head like it's, it's a violent crime but he was you know it's it's not something that's like super sophisticated he got uh, he got caught and he shot his way out and he ends up getting a life sentence for it. What's interesting about him is that while he's at the Minot Municipal Police Station in 1988, uh, this is shortly after he was arrested, he's only held for a few hours because he basically gets away from the detectives who already know he committed this crime and they just want to put him through the court process. But after his initial arrest, Richard McNair was handcuffed to a chair and he was left in a room with three detectives. He had in his pocket a tube of chapstick or lip balm and he used it as a lubricant. He put it around his wrist and he squeezed his hands free from the handcuffs they had him in. And then he led the police on a foot chase through the town. He ran up a three-flight stairway on a nearby building in an effort to evade capture. But he was quickly surrounded by police on the roof of this building. He attempted to jump to a tree branch to escape arrest, but the tree branch broke. And McNair landed on the ground and injured his back. Uh, so after that, it was very difficult for him to run away, and he was pretty easily apprehended. I thought that was pretty uh, reminiscent of Ted Bundy, in a way, uh, although Ted Bundy's was from a courthouse, a jump from a courthouse, and he got away. This guy clearly did not want to go down for this murder. Yeah. <laughs> so after he gets released from the hospital, he was moved to the Ward County Jail in Minot. And in February of 1988, sheriff's deputies discovered another escape attempt when 
while moving McNair to another cell, they found two cinder blocks that had been partially chiseled out from the cell in which he was being held. So this is kind of classic, almost like cartoony. He was literally chiseling around two cinder blocks to pull them out to create an escape hatch, so to speak. And that's not, none of these are super interesting uh, uh, escape plans, I guess. But he does get a little more creative as he goes. On October the 8th of 1992, so four years after that uh, attempt was discovered in Ward County Jail in Minot, McNair escaped with two other prisoners from the North Dakota State Penitentiary in, Nor- uh, in Bismarck, North Dakota. He crawled through a ventilation duct. And one of the prisoners who escaped with McNair was apprehended within hours. And the other was apprehended a few days later. But after his escape, McNair grew out his hair. He dyed it blonde to disguise himself. And he spent a good deal of time roaming around the United States in stolen cars. He was eventually arrested in Grand Island, Nebraska on July 5th of 1993. After his second recapture, the North Dakota Department of Corrections deemed McNair would be a problem inmate. And they arranged for him to be transferred through the interstate compact up to Minnesota Correctional Facility in Oak Park Heights. After a number of years at this facility, and he began to realize he would not be able to escape again, McNair participated in a sit-down strike that ended up causing his return to North Dakota. During his time there, he ends up being transferred to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And he's assigned to a maximum security facility named the USP Florence High. Now, this is on the same grounds as ADX Florence. Do you know what ADX Florence is? No. So ADX Florence is like the strictest security in the country. So I might have tried to put him there. Well, so he's on the ground at, high, at, at Florence High, but he's not on ADX Florence yet. Here's the history of ADX Florence. It opened in 1994, and it was originally classified as what's known as a supermax or a control unit. So the idea with a, a unit like this is it's a much higher level of custody than a maximum security prison, which you would think maximum security would be the maximum, but that's not the case. ADX Florence was commissioned when the Federal Bureau of Prisons decided it needed a unit specifically designed for the secure housing of the prisoners who were the most capable of extreme and sustained violence towards staff or other inmates. Um, I looked up the basic stats on it, and as of September of 2022, they had a listing for a total of 344 inmates. Now, these inmates here, they're confined 23 hours a day in single cells with facilities made of poured, reinforced concrete. Um, Pretty much, there's nothing in these cells that they can pull off the walls. There's really nothing in there that they can harm themselves or others. Uh, They're under 24-hour supervision, and it's carried out with what's considered to be the highest staff to inmate ratio in the country. So they have almost as many working staff 
at ADX Florence as they do inmates in the facility. Right. And so he wasn't at that facility. No, he was in the facility next to that. Okay. Okay. He's making his way there. <laughs> while he's at ADX Florence High, next to AD, oh, while he's at Florence High, next to ADX Florence, McNair begins to realize that he's probably not going to be able to get out of this place. So even though he's not in ADX Florence, he's just in the, the little baby brother. He, he starts to hatch a plan where he will be transferred to the United States Penitentiary at Pollock. So Pollock is in Grant Parish, Louisiana. It's sort of in the middle of nowhere. It has an adjacent like minimum security camp there, but it's considered to be a high security U.S. federal prison for male inmates. Generally speaking, there's not been a lot of things that have happened at, at Camp Pollock or USP Pollock that like, like would stand out. They did have a murder there in um, 2007. So in, in November of 2007, there was an inmate named William Anthony Bullock, and he ends up being stabbed to death by another inmate named Sean Wayne Williams. Williams crafted this shank from part of a, a locker in his cell that was really supposed to be pretty indestructible. Um, Williams was serving a 96-month sentence for being a felon in possession of a firearm. He then ends up convicted in 2009 of voluntary manslaughter, and they add 15 years onto his sentence. Uh, what's interesting about Williams is uh, he's currently been moved over to USP Big Sandy, which is in Martin County, Kentucky. These prisons are all sort of in the middle of nowhere. Williams will get out on January 21st, 2023. His sentence will... Uh, will be over. There was another inmate there named Stephen Prater, and he was serving a 51-month sentence for being a, a felon in possession of a firearm. He ends up fatally injured during a fight with another inmate in June of 2010. And January 28, 2010, an inmate named Carlton Coltrane, he got stabbed to death by another inmate. So uh, Coltrane was serving a sentence for bank robbery. And he said to his mom in a phone call, like several days before he got killed, that there were problems there with gangs of inmates from Louisiana uh, versus uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, area gangs. And basically, they had all, they, they were pretty close to having riots uh, several different times. What's interesting about that, and I, and I wanted to bring it up here as we, before we go back to McNair. Bullock's case in 2007 is solved, but Stephen Prater's case in 2010 and then um, Carlton Coltrane's 2010 case, they're both considered to be unsolved. I thought that was pretty interesting to have unsolved murders in a prison. Well, it is interesting. It's not really surprising because there's a variety of factors that could be why they're not officially solved yeah i suppose if they were more you know first of all it's very difficult to get information about prison homicides yeah um, you're not going to get anything not to mention sometimes there's a lack of motivation to solve them yeah i 
I'm not I, saying it's right. I'm just saying. Well, you know. it, it goes beyond the, the, I think the lack of motivation is part of it, but I think also to some degree, the lack of resources, like there's not as well, many it, skilled go, detectives. There. They go together because, you know, a lack of motivation being you only have so many resources and you put them towards things that motivate you. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would agree with what you're saying there for sure. Back to Mr. McNair. Those were um, so you were giving examples of people um, that had uh, succumbed to prison, basically at in Pollock, uh, Louisiana, at the, the United States Penitentiary. And so after uh, his after he was sent, he got into the federal. Uh, Bureau of Prison System, right? And so yeah. now he has, um, he's orchestrating his way to this United States Penitentiary in Pollock, Louisiana, and he's using the grounds that he's marginally closer to his parents' home in Oklahoma there, right, to be transferred. Yeah, that's how he gets the transfer through, yeah. Right, okay. And so you were just uh, giving examples of what's going on there. Yeah, so uh, his... Last escape attempt is essentially 1993. All of this time, he's just kind of bounced around prisons after that. He goes from uh, Minnesota through the interstate compact, and then he participates in a strike, and he goes back to North Dakota, and then he's transferred to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and then ultimately he ends up in Pollock. So in 2006, while he's down in Pollock, McNair is doing work in the prison. He works in a manufacturing area, and what they have him doing there is they have him repairing different items. And one of the things that he is repairing is old torn mailbags. Like these are like massive bags that like they, they sort of rest in these stands. Um, they're like 48 inches by 48 inches uh, like by 48 inches. They're giant squares. Um, and all the mail goes gets dumped in there um, and sorted. So he's in there like repairing the corners and repairing uh, the tops of the mailbags. And he's in this position for several months. And it turns out he was plotting yet another escape. McNair escapes by hiding himself in a specially constructed escape pod, which even included a breathing tube that is buried under a pile of mailbags. The mailbag pile ends up shrink-wrapped, and then it gets forklifted over to a nearby warehouse that is outside of the prison fence. The pallet gets picked up on April 5th, 2006, uh, in the morning, and the prison staff associated with it, they deliver it to this warehouse. And then the prison staff goes to lunch. And when they go to lunch, McNair cuts his way out of the shrink wrap, gets out of the escape pod, and basically walks through an unsecured area at the back of the warehouse to his freedom. Now, federal investigators at the time believed that McNair must have received help from other inmates to escape. But McNair's story has been that in order to do this, he acted alone. At 9.45 a.m., uh, the, the timeline that day, uh, federal investigators determined that McNair's pallet was shipped out of the prison uh, around 9.45 a.m., and he was able to exit the pallet by 11 a.m. 
McNair was aware that it would not be until 4 p.m. that the prison would find him missing at the next count. His plan was to go to the nearby town of Alexandria, Louisiana, where he would then steal supplies and he would pick up some transportation. Hours after the escape, McNair was stopped while running away on a railroad track near Ball, Louisiana, by a police officer named Carl Bordelin. This incident was captured on a video camera that was mounted in Bordelin's patrol car. McNair had no identification, and he proceeded to give Officer Bordelin the alias of Robert Jones. When asked again five minutes later, he gave a different alias, Jimmy Jones, although the officer did not notice that he had changed his answer. McNair laughed and joked with the officer, and even as the officer got a matching description of the inmate, McNair appeared collected and calm on video. He successfully convinces Borderland that he was jogging and in town to help on a post-Katrina roofing project. And Borderland lets him go back to, quote, jogging, Uh, within about 10 minutes of the stop. Now, one of the things that made it easier for McNair to escape arrest was that the photo that was provided to him by the Bureau of Prisons was very low quality and it was six months old. Another was that the prison had told police that they were not completely sure if McNair had escaped. Borderland himself claimed that he let McNair go because the physical description of McNair given to police was completely different from how McNair actually appeared. Over the 10 minutes that he questioned McNair, McNair remained calm and provided completely plausible explanations, eventually convincing Bordelin that his alibi and reasoning for being there was true. McNair later wrote that he did not see the cruiser because it was blocked from his view of trees, and he had planned to run if he was not able to convince Bordelin of his innocence. Uh, Federal investigators, they alleged that the possibility existed that McNair would have assaulted the police officer if confronted, and McNair claimed that he had renounced violence after his very first arrest. He described the escape as a get-out-of-jail-free card, and he described his feelings after the confrontation with Borderland as relief, disbelief, and bewilderment. And McNair agreed that he did not resemble his prison picture at the time. Have you seen pictures of this guy? Yes. He, he has a lot of different looks. His standard look, he's got kind of a crew cut and then a, a neat beard. But he, you know, I've seen pictures of him with longer hair, with blonde hair. Uh, he's definitely uh, somebody I think could potentially blend in somewhere. I had, had wondered about uh, Carl Bordelin, and I found on the Wikipedia for this stuff that Bordelin, he stayed with uh, the Ball Police Department and eventually became the assistant police chief. But he died in 2015 at the age of 51. He's very young. Yeah, very young guy. Um, I, I think a lot of times uh, law enforcement uh, uh, go earlier for a number of reasons. I'm sure like the stress of uh, working jobs in areas like this can't be fun for them. So what do you think happened to McNair after he escapes from uh, the the USP Pollock. That he ran. He vanishes. He absolutely disappears. So he ends up, uh, where I first heard about him was on America's Most Wanted. And it was 
when I saw the America's Most Wanted for McNair, it was it must have been like in the month after he went poof. Uh, on April 13th, 2006, the United States Marshals put McNair on their 15 most wanted list as an escaped murderer. And his, uh, I call it the, the post office poster, because they used to be in the front of the post office right. when you go in. Mm-hmm. Um, on that, they noted that McNair was the first prisoner to escape from federal prison since 1991. So he's the first federal prisoner escapee in 15 years. And basically, they needed Tommy Lee Jones to come and find him. I love those movies, by the way. So in April, uh, about two weeks after his escape, McNair managed to get to Blaine, Washington. Now, Blaine, Washington is in Whatcom uh, County. Uh, The city's most northern boundary is the U.S.-Canadian border. We've talked about uh, Malone and Constable, New York, being places you could sort of walk across. Actually, I, sometime this year, didn't you message me that you or maybe your husband had um, gone up to that area? My husband did. Um, I messaged you because um, we had talked about it, uh, I don't know when. Multiple last- times, Yeah. <laughs> about how you can get into Canada. And this particular time, uh, my husband informed me that like they went out on a boat and uh, they were able to go into Canada with no border patrol. Um, And now I wasn't sure if like what would happen if they had like parked and like gotten out of the boat. Right. So they were just on a waterway. Gotcha. But they were, but they were in Canadian territory, basically, and nobody they went said from the United States into Canada. Yeah. So this is that space. Um, if you picture like the northern part of New York as you move into Canada, but it's on the west coast. So essentially, like if you're in Blaine, Washington, um, the next place that you would be is actually British Columbia in Canada. Right. On April 28, 2006, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Penticton, British Columbia, confronted McNair while investigating a stolen car that he was driving, which was parked at a local beach there. The officers asked McNair if he would step out of the car to be questioned, and he did. But he ran across a nearby field, and he outran the officers soon after he was confronted. The police impounded the car, but they did not realize the identity of McNair until two days later when one of the officers recognized him from an episode of America's Most Wanted. Subsequent investigations found a digital camera full of self-portraits, which police determined were probably for the purpose of producing a fake ID. When authorities examined the car, they found McNair's fingerprints, and this confirmed that he had been in Canada. I thought that was pretty fascinating um, that they were uh, that the Canadian police discovered they had a fugitive on their hands from America's Most Wanted, and they were able to confirm it all. But by then, he's gone. You know, right? Yeah, <laughs> and and that's only nine days after he um, had crossed into Canada. Yeah. So he, this guy, I mean, if we look at it overall, he gets out on April fifth. All right, he's added to the most wanted list on April the 13th. And on uh, April 
the 28th, he's confirmed in Canada. So no matter how we shake that, in 23 days, this guy made it from Louisiana to Blaine, Washington, and then crossed into Canada. And real like he had a couple of issues there, but really seems that that's pretty impressive. Well, I don't know that impressive is the right word, but I mean, it's, it's a feat. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so after escaping this, uh, arrest that probably would have happened for the stolen car and Penticton, McNair rides a bicycle over to an area known as Okanagan Lake, which is in the Okanagan Valley. It's on the Southern interior of British Columbia. Uh, he stops in a town called Kelowna. Because it had taken several days for the police to confirm his identity, it was actually pretty easy for McNair to escape this area. And in May of 2006, McNair goes back to the United States, where he's driving a Subaru Outback from Vernon, British Columbia, back into Blaine, Washington. So at this point, he starts to travel across the United States and he crosses back into Canada in Minnesota. Yeah. So I think that answers our question about that. Yeah. I mean, if like he, he doesn't do it once. He does it like five times. That's one of the reasons it stood out to me. So he, he gets back into Canada and then he decides I'm just going to travel along. So he travels through Southern Ontario and then he goes West to Vancouver His plan had been he was going to buy some land in central British Columbia over around Williston Lake. So when he was in BC, he saw ads for this property. But then when he visited the area, he found that they had a drought problem and they had a bug problem. Uh, They had a specifically they had a pine beetle infestation. Uh, They. It also made him pretty nervous because in the area that he was looking at around Williston Lake, there was only one road in and one road out from like that neighborhood, basically. And I think that made him think, oh, well, that's not a very good way to plan my next escape. (laughs) So, I mean, at least he's thinking kind of smart about it. Uh, So in 2007, McNair travels over to Eastern Canada So he drives through the highlands in Quebec and apparently he tells someone later, which we'll get to this whole thing, um, that he enjoyed mountain biking. And I was like, how can you be like, when do you settle in? Okay. So the, the records that I have of this guy by his own accord with some police involvement, and there's a third party that comes into play here. He spends a year doing this. So basically the the bulk of 2006, because we know he gets out in April. So from April to December there, he's traveling. And then in 2007, he's still traveling. He's over in, in Quebec now. He spends a lot of time around uh, Lac St. John. And my, is it St. John or St. Jean? Do you know? I don't know. Okay, so this is. I think it's um, St. John. St. John, New Brunswick. Is that what you mean? No, no. This is in Quebec. Uh, it's uh, it's the oh, lake. It's the uh, lake in Quebec. Yeah. Well, it depends on if it's French or not. <laughs> so, it's either St. Jean or St. John. Yeah. So he does in 2007 decide that he's going to go back into the U.S. 
And he tries to cross in an area known as Derby Line, Vermont. Uh, this is up in Orleans County. So it's like the, like, it's a very northern portion of Vermont. But now here, he can see on the other side that this is not a, one of the typical border crossings he's thinking of. He feels like it's probably going to be too risky. So he decides that he's not going to cross back into the U.S., even though he wanted to. And he eventually finds his uh, his way over to Nova Scotia, then to New Brunswick. Um, he spent multiple months in Fredericton, New Brunswick, before he is again confronted by the police. Now, if you if you pull up anything on uh, McNair, one of the things they'll talk about is like him avoiding recapture. Uh, he, he's he's pretty smart as a fugitive. Uh, and he knows that he's been on America's Most Wanted, by the way. So when America's Most Wanted ran their first profile, weirdly enough, of all the people that like it would catch the attention of, it catches McNair's attention. And I hadn't thought about this before. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. Like you, you thought about like the the prisoner looking at it and going, "Oh, I can." Well, yeah, because um, actually. A smart escapee would be watching things like that because they would want to know, like, what information was out there about them. You know, in my head, like, when I picture escaping, like, at no point in time does it really involve, like, pausing and watching television. Well, but this guy was doing nothing but pausing. Like, he was on vacation. (laughs) He really wasn't. He, He basically took an extended sabbatical. I mean, what do you even do for work and get money? I mean, I guess you're well, stealing everything. Well, yeah, but he was going to buy land. I mean, it's insanity. <laughs> so, all right. So he uses, uh, this is so funny to me. He uses America. He uses America's Most Wanted to sort of. Evade, capture. It, yeah, like like this is, like, that's how he makes his plans. Because so the, he was on there 12 times. Yeah, he's on the television program 12 times. He's featured nine times on the radio part of America's Most Wanted, which until we were covering this, I didn't even know they ran those on the radio. Did you know that? That they would run the America's Most Wanted profiles on the radio? I honestly don't know. It doesn't I, seem like it would be as an effect, as effective considering it's radio. So the last time that McNair ends up featured is November 24th, 2007. So from April 8th, 2006 till November 2007, they feature him 12 times on the television program and nine times on the radio. And over the period of McNair's time in Canada, Canadian viewers made over 50 reports to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, confirming that the fugitive was in Canada. He was north of the U.S. border. So McNair later described America's Most Wanted as being a giant thorn in his side, and he started to make his plans around the show. He confirmed after he gets recaptured, because I do want to point out, I'm going to go ahead and say it, he does get recaptured. Um, He confirmed after he finally was recaptured that whenever a new episode of America's Most Wanted aired, he would buy food and fuel for his vehicle, and then it would feature, so he would keep it low for a couple of days. So if 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 he's on America's Most Wanted, he would he would go off the radar. And throughout his time as a fugitive, McNair admitted that he tracked his own story on the internet. 
After his recapture, he commented that the ongoing coverage of him was for the most part true. A Louisiana marshal named Glenn Belgard attempted to capture McNair online with the help of a criminal profiler. McNair suspected that the Louisiana police had attempted to contact him by posing as a woman who said that she would like to hide McNair in her basement. Nice try. Uh, McNair was surprised by how much media coverage actually had focused on him, especially when he found an 11-page article written by Mark Singer in The New Yorker on November 9th of 2006. And I thought that was hilarious, by the way, that he ends up with an 11-page like cover feature piece. During his time, and again, this is one of those things that blows my mind, McNair owned multiple laptops. So his laptop that he has with him as he's crossing the U.S. is taken at that very first incident when they assume that his car is stolen and he runs away and Pentacton. So that's the first incident that he has with the RCMP uh, in the, like that's when he first gets to British Columbia. He had used uh after that happened to him and his laptop got taken with the stolen car, he began to store most of his information on these USB sticks that he used. And with the help of a scanner, a digital camera, a fo- Photoshop, Adobe Photoshop, and a pet ID website, McNair was able to produce passable fake Alaska driver's licenses. So think about that for a second. He took a scanner, a digital camera, Photoshop, and a pet ID website, and he produced a fake Alaskan driver's license in 2006. <laughs> he learned how to rig his video camera to his laptop, um, and he used the video camera and the laptop to cut his own hair so that he looked differently than the pictures that they were covering, that they were showing. Uh, One of McNair's laptops was solely dedicated to monitoring a Louisiana-based website which closely followed all of the media coverage about McNair, basically because he was a local fugitive, even though he's not from there. That's where he's – that's the prison that he was at. So in order to support himself, he would steal vehicles and cash from car dealerships. Now, he had once worked as a car salesman himself – Uh, prior to the Air Force, and he knew where to find cash and keys at the dealerships and how to avoid their security. McNair would only steal new vehicles since they had window stickers on them that indicated whether the vehicle had a GPS-style tracking system. So if it was low-jacked, he wasn't getting involved. That's pretty smart, actually. That's really smart. I mean, this guy is. He's, like, super smart, except for that first murder. Like, and he says he swears off violence after the fact. Uh, and I know, like, I guess when you're stuck in a situa- situation like that, like he made a really dumb decision choosing to kill the people who caught him. McNair had avoided anything conspicuous looking, and he preferred white vehicles that everybody had. I can think of another person who would benefit from knowing that white vehicles that everyone had were the way to go. Um, and definitely don't turn them back into the rental place. He once considered stealing a three-quarter ton truck and camper, but one of the supposing sightings, one of the supposed sightings of, of McNair was in North Dakota, which is where he's from, 
in a truck with a camper. So he eventually settled on, settled on just having a van instead. He was basically trying to have a vehicle that he could, you know, use as multiple things. He could drive around in it, but he could also like have a, a place to hole up if he needed to. In one incident, while McNair was staying in a motel near Chilliwack, British Columbia, he left to buy something and he returned to find the motel was surrounded by a police SWAT team. McNair was about to flee in his car, but later found on a local AM radio station that the police were responding to a hostage situation at the motel that was unrelated to him. So McNair returned to the scene in Chilliwack and he filmed the standoff with a Sony HD video camera that he had bought. He filmed a 20-minute scene of these cops surrounding this motel that he was staying in because it had nothing to do with him. <laughs> I mean, there's almost like a comedy to this. Like, the, this is seriously something like if this – like Dahmer came out uh, this year. I don't know if you saw that, the Dahmer story on Netflix. And I kept trying to get into it. I never got into it. My kid was trying to talk me into it. It came out in the summertime or late summer. And like I, I, I don't – I don't need that much information about Jeffrey Dahmer anymore. And there's been so many things I've watched about him. I sort of bailed on it. But if you, if you pitched me like the idea of watching Richard McNair's like Canadian travels with him mountain biking and like filming this hostage situation, I would totally watch this movie. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. So on October 24th of 2007, he was near Nash Creek, New Brunswick. Um, And this is the area where he had thought about potentially buying some land. There was an off-duty RCMP constable there named Dan Melanson. He spotted an expensive-looking white cube van, so like one of those little kind of sprinter vans, but, you know, it's it's 15 years ago. So it had a crappy-looking tinted rear window and an Ontario license plate. He immediately suspected that the van was stolen or being used to potentially smuggle alcohol, cigarettes, or drugs. Melanson wrote down the plate number and that the van was headed in the direction of Campbellton, which is a nearby city. He did not attempt to apprehend McNair, but his report alerted other RCMP in Campbellton of the presence of McNair's vehicle. Uh, apparently, McNair had, in fact, tinted the windows himself, uh, himself according to his story, in a, uh, in a park in Ontario. But the next day, Constable... Uh, Stephanie Gagman, who's a six-week rookie, so a month and a half on in the force, uh, they spotted McNair's van by chance in downtown Campbellton and pursued it, following a very low-speed car chase and then a subsequent low-speed foot chase. McNair was successfully arrested by Gagnon with the help of uh, Gagnon's field training officer, Constable Nelson Levesque. And in October of 2008, the U.S.-based International Association of Chiefs of Police would award Melanson uh, the Looking Beyond the License Plate Grand Prize for his role in uh, apprehending McNair. McNair himself described his capture as simply the product of bad luck. Uh, His exact quote was, it was just one of those days. So McNair gets transferred to the Atlantic Institution, which is a federal prison uh, in Uh, Reno, New Brunswick, it's a Canadian uh, maximum security uh, prison. And so he gets held there while awaiting extradition to the United States. Uh, Mounties later told the media that McNair was cooperative after his capture 
He was jovial and he even joked with them. When one officer asked McNair what the reward was for his capture, McNair replied $25,000. The officer said, that's not much. And McNair replied, that was because all of the good government money is tied up in Osama bin Laden's reward. Mm. <laughs> McNair later, later described the men working Campbellton RCMP as good men just doing their job. So in uh, 2008, <laughs> after McNair was recaptured, he ends up talking with Byron Christopher, who is a crime reporter from the same New Brunswick town where McNair was captured. Uh, and they initiated a correspondence with uh, the two of them talking by mail. In his first letter, Christopher included a picture that he had taken of the town uh, near the place that McNair was arrested. And he told McNair that he hoped the Campbellton Chamber of Commerce would write a check to McNair for all the publicity he brought to their town. Uh, and he wrote to McNair about things like the U.S. election and the World Series games. Uh, the election at that time would have been uh, the 2008 United States uh, election between John McCain and, and Barack Obama. Christopher included three American dollars to cover the cost of paper and postage, but the prison returned the money. When McNair wrote back to Christopher, it was his first response to the media. Uh, the letter revealed a lot of personal details about McNair's most recent escape, which had previously been unknown, um, including that he had spent time hiding in Fredericton, New Brunswick, which we talked about. And McNair described Fredericton's uh, residence as very friendly and well-educated, and, and he revealed that his favorite uh, magazine was the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, Campbellton's local newspaper, the Tribune, started to publish the correspondence in detail uh, with Byron Christopher sort of uh, uh, cultivating the, the coverage of it. In subsequent letters to Christopher, McNair revealed details about his escape and all these travels that he had, uh, which is what provides uh, most of what we know about his time as a fugitive. Um, and he also had some uh, interesting discussions where uh, he McNair had an interest in discussing his story with a British TV reporter, but the correspondence was stopped because he believes that the prison interfered and basically said, we're not going to let him do that. Uh, Christopher, Byron Christopher, he later put all the letters together and conducted a lot of additional research on the story. And he produced a book on McNair uh, called The Man Who Mailed Himself Out of Jail. Uh, it's on Amazon, and there's a follow-up to this series uh, called the Running Man series, which is – that's the series that was published by the Tribune newspaper in Campbellton, New Brunswick in 2009. I just – I thought this was an interesting story. Um, I guess we have to go to like where he currently is and like talk about that. McNair – is uh, he is Federal Bureau of Prisons ID number 13829-045. He is currently incarcerated at ADX Florence. So he was at Florence High before. Now he's in ADX Florence. Uh, ADX Florence is known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies, and it houses some of the most uh, dangerous U.S. prisoners, uh, people who have been deemed too great a security risk for even a maximum security prison. Uh, as I was previously describing. And when McNair was captured, uh, several law enforcement sources told AMW that he would almost certainly spend the rest of his life at ADX. Uh, McNair now spends most of his time every day in a 12 by 7 foot concrete cell. Uh, he lives in a pod with five other prisoners, so six people in a suite. Uh, he has no access to the internet. The prison staff screen and reject McNair's incoming mail if it deals with topics prohibited by federal regulations, which include escape plans. 
And in his media correspondence, McNair describes his location as the most secure section of the most secure prison in the world, but expressed reservations about discussing specific details of his incarceration. Uh, and he wrote, according, this is uh, from Wikipedia, thank God for prisons. There are some very sick people in here, animals you would never want living near your family or the public in general. I don't know how correction staff deal with it. They get spit on, shit on, abused, and I've seen them risk their own lives and save a prisoner many times. What do you think of the story of uh, Richard McNair? Well, I think that, um, uh, well, his story is interesting, but I also think it's a good illustration of sort of um, uh, like clearly this man is not a killer, right? I mean, he did kill someone um, and it was the result of a botched robbery, right? Yeah. And it was then... Uh, it was his reaction to not wanting to get caught uh, robbing the thing that he was robbing to begin with, right? Yeah. Um, which I can't remember what that was now. <laughs> he was, was robbing that? a grain elevator. That's a what grain elevator, yeah. yeah, which I don't even know what you get out of that. But um, so, so he demonstrated that he wasn't a killer, uh because, uh, you know, they, they questioned whether or not he would have um, gotten on to or he would have physically confronted the officer who initially saw him and then let him go. Um, but, you know, when he was confronted with the stolen car, he didn't attack those officers. He ran away, right? Yeah. Uh, there's video of him talking to Bordelin on the Internet. Yeah. He is so nice. He's in like uh, like cut off shorts and like a prison tank top, and he is being so nice to the officer. Uh, I saw somebody online had started up, and maybe maybe it's just the time of year because the holiday time of year is always make me sort of sentimental. But this guy started a petition to free him, either free him or to move him out of ADX Florence. Um, I understand why he's in ADX Florence, but I agree with everything you just said. And I actually think that people like Richard Lee McNair, while I know that what he did was terrible um, back in 1987, he, in my mind, is the picture of like someone we should focus on, like for the idea of reform. Right. So he was 29 years old um, when he murdered the man and attempted to murder the other man. Uh, and... He's 63 years old now, right? Yeah. And so while I can't condone, um, you know, he went, he did go through the process. Um, I don't know that he's ever said he didn't murder the guy and attempt to murder the other guy. But this would be a prime candidate for rehabilitation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it. these cases fascinate me, but um, it's, the exception proving the rule as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you compared him to Ted Bundy. Uh, you compared him to Ted Bundy and, you know, he's nothing like Ted Bundy. Now his escape attempts were sort of uh, on par. But, oh yeah. That's the only thing I was comparing. Um, Richard McNair was free for 10 months. Right. Yeah. Um, and he, there was no violent acts committed. And I, you know, I'd like to know, I would like to know more about like what that initial motive for that initial robbery was. And I have a feeling it was because he needed money. 
because yeah. money's always the motivation for robbery. Um, it also uh, is why he continued stealing, right? After he got out of prison, he was stealing cars and stealing cash. And, and you know, to me, that's just really sad. Um, it's a life wasted. And obviously his victim... Uh, his victims. I don't know what the status of the man he shot was, but he didn't die from that. Um, but you know, I'm sure he was filled with a lot of regret from that, but he's not a killer. And I don't know that at the time that it occurred, it could have been distinguished. Right. Yeah. And I don't know that if it's just because we get to look back through all these, um, antics here, and see, but this man doesn't belong in a supermax prison. Um, he, you know, killed someone and he is now serving that sentence. I don't know that he should be released. Um, he's not going to be released. It doesn't really matter what kind of petitions are put up there. Cause once you escape from prison, I mean, you get heavily punished for that cause it's a deterrence to other prisoners. Right. Yeah. And uh, he made some really poor choices. He would probably continue to make poor choices, you know, if he were to be let out of prison. But he is not a danger to society in a violent sense. Yeah, that that's the impression that I was left with. And I, you know, I went and pulled up, um, I pulled up multiple pieces of his uh, sort of court and case law stuff. It is not super interesting he like I, I don't mean that to disparage the, the victims or anything like that but everything that i read about uh the the state versus uh mcnair in north dakota he's not um he, he is a uh, he would definitely be a rehabilitable uh criminal i, I will say this if you're going to keep him in prison you probably have to keep him in um, Supermax, uh, but I don't necessarily know that like like that's the the best thing to do. The guy that he killed was a, a truck driver named uh, Jerome Thews. Uh, he went by Jerry. Uh, it was just a it was just a robbery attempt that went wrong. And I don't want to say that you know uh, Jerry's wife wasn't worthwhile or anything like that. But I do want to say that the whole point, like the whole point of the criminal justice system is we have to do something with these people. Um, this is not a serial killer. This is not necessarily a cold blooded murderer. The proof is sort of in the pudding with, uh, with people like this McNair, whether it was to not draw attention to himself or was not to uh, get, you know, recaught versus like, you know, was it really him? He managed to stay off the radar and not hurt anyone for a long time while he was on the run. And I, I think personally that it's because he had been in there long enough that he truly had been to some degree reformed or rehabilitated. Do you think that's accurate? I think that if he had um, been older to begin with when that first um 
when the when the robbery happened where he killed the guy and shot the other guy, um, I don't think he would have killed them. I think it was a reaction. Uh, you know, I've, I've talked about a lot of times the reason armed robberies are charged different than like not armed robberies um, is because usually in those situations when someone um, ends up dying, it's almost like a... Uh, a trigger switch. Like, I don't know that that's the right word, but the reason it's a reflex action to uh, shoot somebody if you're holding a gun and you're startled or you suddenly feel like things aren't going the way you thought they were going to go. So you think it's more reflex than murder? Well, it's definitely murder because he was robbing a place and had a gun, right? But like, let's say in this situation, he didn't have a gun. He wouldn't have beaten the guy to death. Gotcha. I see. I follow where you're going. Um, and, you know, that's why there's such a big difference between uh, armed robbery versus not armed robbery. And to me, if you think about it, most of the time, actually don't think about it, but if you look into the statistics and look at cases, most of the time somebody ends up being shot when something goes wrong, right, in a robbery situation. He had no interest in killing anybody. I, I don't think. I mean, he never did again. And it's unfortunate that, you know, he, so he was in the Air Force. Yeah, he was a sergeant in the Air Force at the time this happened. And it, it, if you want to read more about this whole thing, I, I just want to go ahead. That makes me wonder, like, did he really need money? I don't know. He's a pretty resourceful guy. But my thing with this guy, if you want to read more about him, you can go to ByronChristopher.org. Uh, there are several different books. Byron Christopher has done a lot of research on uh, Richard Lee McNair. And he sort of wrote the book on him. He's up in Campbellton where McNair was ultimately caught. But the, the McNair to me is sort of like... Look, I don't, I don't have like a thing where I'm going to be like, oh, we should free McNair or anything like that. Um, I, that, that's not how I think about him. What I do think about McNair is McNair sort of represents to me that as a society, we need a way to be able to say this person is reformed and they can go back. And like right now, as far as parole and probation and all the things that we do with prisoners, none of those things, like those things all sort of fail guys like McNair. And I'm not like I, I I'm in the holiday spirit. I can't quite get myself to free McNair in my head. But if this guy's behavior while he was on the run is representative of who he is, and now given I know he committed crimes, he stole things to survive and to do that. But like he had nothing but polite and positive things to say at the end of it all. It is so weird that that uh, is the approach he took to things. That's the definition of a reformable individual. Well, right. And so having been sentenced uh, to ter two terms of life in prison, he had nothing to lose. You have to keep that sort of in mind. And even with nothing to lose, he didn't hurt anybody else. Yeah, he didn't. So that is how he ends up as uh, one of our Christmas prisoners. Uh, doing these escapees things is fun, but I will uh, go ahead and say that like, uh, I'm not advocating for anyone to remain on the run. Um, I'm not necessarily advocating for the process either, but 
the cases I picked are either this way or they're on the other end of things where they're truly horrifying and I can't believe they never caught the person. Uh, did you have anything else to say about Mr. McNair? Nope. Well, Merry Christmas, Richard. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time. Stay.